My name is uh, Bud Brainerd, and I'm one of the pastors here at Lake Forest Davidson. <clears throat> Each Sunday, we have people gather in this gymnasium, some of whom are cautious about Jesus, some are curious about Jesus, others are fully committed to following Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum, there's a place for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. As long as you don't have it all together, you will fit right in. Today we begin our new series. It's an Advent series. So with Advent, let me be the first one to wish you a Happy New Year. Some of you look a little confused. All right. So Advent is the beginning of the Christian calendar. You know, we have a, we have a Gregorian calendar that starts January 1st. Advent actually starts the Christian calendar. It's the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And the first Sunday of Advent, the theme is always hope. Now our Advent series is entitled, What Child Is This? And hope and what child is this seem to fit together, at least to me, hand in hand. So that's where we're headed this morning. The anticipation, the reason I think they go together is that the anticipation of the birth of a child sets the minds and the imaginations of the parents, the grandparents, the relatives, the friends, all into motion. And they begin to imagine fears, hopes, dreams, and all of those things get woven together and projected onto and into this little bundle of joy that's about to show up. And then when the birth happens, when that happens, when the delivery takes place, the nine months of anticipation give way to a lifetime of wondering what this child will become and what this child will accomplish in the world. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if a child could answer that question, those two questions? Well, in this sermon series, we're going to explore what Jesus has to say about himself. He's going to tell us who he is. He's going to tell us what he will become. And he's going to tell us what he will accomplish in the world. And so what he has to say about himself should inform and deeply impact our fears our hopes, and our dreams. So to do that, we're simply going to explore some of the I am sayings of Jesus. These are metaphors that Jesus uses to tell us who he is and what he's going to accomplish in the world. There are seven of them, and all of them are found in the Gospel of John. Each metaphor begins with the what we know as the English I am. In Greek, it's ego emi. And if, if you were an original hearer when Jesus is, is speaking these metaphors, it would be like dynamite. It would stop you in your tracks. And the reason for that is that in the Old Testament, we have recorded a conversation between Moses and God himself. Here's how that conversation goes out of Exodus 3. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? 
what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So Moses asked God to tell him his name, and God says, my name is Ego Imi, I am. And so when Jesus identifies himself with these two words, he is identifying himself as God. This Jesus, this child born in Bethlehem is God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Now, Jesus loves everybody. But just like you and me, he has some that are kind of his closest friends. There was a family who lived in Bethany, two sisters and a brother. The sisters' names were Mary and Martha, and the brother's name was Lazarus. Now, we picked up this story with, these, with this family, with these three characters, kind of in the middle of John chapter 11 at verse 17. But we shouldn't forget what happens at the beginning of this chapter. Jesus and his disciples hear that Lazarus is sick. Now, only Jesus knows just exactly how sick Lazarus is. And so Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep and he's going to wake him up. Isn't that nice? I think that's a nice thing for Jesus to do is to go and wake Lazarus up. And his disciples seem to be relieved because if, if Lazarus has fallen asleep, he will surely recover and he'll be just fine. And it was in that moment that Jesus realized that he had been too vague, too obtuse. And so he tells them plainly, Lazarus, their friend, his friend, had died. Now we don't know what Lazarus died from, whether he died suddenly or whether it was from a prolonged illness, but we know that Lazarus has died. And if Lazarus is dead, that changes everything. Now they're not going to Bethany to celebrate a healing. They're going to Bethany to participate in a funeral. Anytime we get the word of the death of a friend, it comes to us as a shock. Disbelief is quickly followed by pain and anguish. And so in the midst of his disciples' shock, pain, and anguish, Jesus says to them, and I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. Now think about that for a minute. You've just heard that one of your close friends has died, and Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. Believe what? That death is not real? That death is not powerful? They knew then, just like we know now, that death is real. 
and death is powerful. And so I wonder what Jesus, God incarnate, is about to say and do to help them believe. We're going to do a little flashback. We're going to flashback to the time before when Jesus goes to visit this family. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. He stops by their house for a meal. Now Luke doesn't tell us that Lazarus is there, but Mary and Martha are there, the two sisters. And Jesus tells us something really important about Martha. Here's what he tells us. He says to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now I can't help but wonder if one of the things that she was anxious and troubled about was her brother's declining health. Some of us are facing the holidays this year with either a friend or a family member who is struggling with a serious and maybe even life-threatening illness. And so worry and anxiety come easy for those of us who don't know what the future holds. But the truth is, that none of us knows what the future holds. None of us knows when or how God is going to call us home. Life is a precious gift and each day should be savored and valued. So we'll go back to Bethany now in our story. And when Jesus arrives... Mary stays in the house, and Martha, the one who is anxious and troubled, Martha comes out to meet him, and she's not happy. She is not happy at all. As a matter of fact, she is so overwhelmed by her grief that she says what she thinks to Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you imagine getting mad and angry at Jesus? Of course you can. And so can I. Could Jesus have prevented Lazarus' death? Yes. That is well within God's power. But Jesus didn't. And we want to know why. And so does Martha. In her grief, Martha wants to know why Jesus did not intervene and prevent her brother's death. Why didn't he show up on time? Why didn't Jesus answer their prayers? They were praying fervently and sincerely, and Jesus was their friend. Oftentimes in our grief, we want to know why Jesus didn't heal my sick mother or brother or sister, or father, or friend. Why didn't Jesus prevent the accident? Why didn't Jesus bring the healing we prayed for? Why didn't Jesus protect the child? Why didn't Jesus stop the gunman or prevent the war? When God doesn't answer our prayers, we can become disillusioned, angry, and confused. 
Doesn't God care? Is God making us suffer for some sin in our life? Is God punishing us? Why, why, why? And in those moments of deep grief and in our anger, sometimes God goes silent. Sometimes we catch ourselves and we give God a second chance to make it right. We give God a second chance to do what we think is the right thing. And so Martha gives that a try. Martha says, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask for. Grief can drive us to desperation and we try bargaining with God. That's okay. God doesn't mind. God does not object. He is not offended. In fact, the God we worship and serve understands what it is to grieve the loss of a loved one. And so Mary, or Jesus, responds to to Martha's comment. He offers what are really meant to be words of comfort. But in times of deep grief, words of comfort are hard to hear. Jesus says to this grieving sister, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, but that's not my point. That's little comfort to me or to my grieving sister. And then Jesus adds this statement of his identity. And in this one self disclosure, Jesus tells Martha and he tells us sitting here today who he is, what he will do, and what he will accomplish in the world. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I can read Martha's mind. He said, I am. Jesus, I think you just told me that you are the great I am, that you are God. And you just told me that you are the resurrection and the life. But here's the thing. My brother... Lazarus is still dead. He's still in the grave. You ask me if I believe you, and to be honest, I'm not sure. I have visited his grave for four days in a row now, and nothing has changed. Maybe you've walked a few miles in Martha's shoes. Jesus understands. You know, we often overlook the fact that there is a lag time between Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life and the time that he raises Lazarus from the dead. Scholars call this the in-between time. There is an interim period where Jesus' words and her reality don't seem to line up. It is in this time 
between when God makes a promise and the time God fulfills his promise that we live. It is in this in-between time that our questions come to the surface, and it's more common than you might think, even for mature believers. Now, we get that Martha was already anxious and troubled about a lot of things, but what about her sister? Remember, Mary is the one who, when he came to their house for the meal, Mary is the one who sat at his feet. She took in every word that the master had to say. She was a committed disciple. So how does she react? When Mary reached the place when Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Hmm. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Does that sound familiar? What confidence these two sisters must have had in Jesus' ability to heal their brother. And yet they seem to blame Jesus for not saving him. In the face of death, it is hard to understand why God doesn't intervene. God is powerful enough. God is loving enough. God is caring enough. Yet sometimes in our grief, all of those things get called into question. And it's not just a problem for believers. It's a huge stumbling block for those who do not yet believe. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? I've seen it hundreds of times in hospital rooms, in emergency rooms, and at accident scenes. I've seen people's confidence in God turn into confusion when their prayers seem to go unanswered. I've seen the hot tears roll down the cheeks. I've seen the clenched fists I've heard people say where is God? The answer is God is with you and God hates death even more than we do and when we grieve we do not grieve alone When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. I love two things about these verses. First, there are others who had come alongside this family to grieve with them. And I've been doing this long enough that I've heard a lot of preachers go on and on suggesting that these were merely professional mourners and they belittle their support for the family. I think that's just stupid and small-minded, if not anti-Semitic. Grief is meant to be shared. It is not a weight meant to be carried alone. Grief is a communal affair. When one suffers, we all suffer, and no one should suffer alone. To prove that point, we look at the example of Jesus. Jesus wept. 
It is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it expresses the deepest compassion of a loving God for his people. And I've heard people in their grief and anger say that God doesn't care. The scriptures tell us different. Because Jesus wept. And if Jesus wept, it's okay for us to weep. And if you have 500 tears to cry out, don't let anybody tell you you have to stop at 250. Grief is important work. Even though Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he knew that neither the grave nor the grave clothes would be able to hold him. And yet Jesus wept because losing a friend Losing a family member hurts. Now you may have noticed that we stopped the reading of this story before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And you may be wondering why. Isn't that the whole point of the story? Well, it's certainly one important point in the story, but I don't think it's the only point. I believe that Jesus is encouraging us to grieve. The greater the love, the deeper the grieve. But there's another lesson this story communicates to us. And that is that we all live in this in-between time. Where all we have is hope. And our hope does not disappoint. It doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. We need hope, especially during the holidays. Because it's during the holidays that our need for hope becomes heightened because the holidays are when we gather with those that we love. It's during the holidays when we miss our loved ones even more than usual the holidays magnify our loss. The sadness feels sadder and the loneliness goes deeper and the need for support may be the greatest during the holidays. Pretending that you don't hurt or that it's not harder at this time of year is just not true. Losing friends and loved ones is hard. Every Thanksgiving and Christmas, I think of the death of my father. He was 48 and I was 21. I think of the death of my mother. She was 64 and I was 39. I've lost family members. I've lost friends. I've lost co-workers. And over the course of my ministry, I've conducted well over 100 funerals. And I know, I know that each one of you here this morning has lost friends and loved ones. And some of you very recently. Some are facing Thanksgiving and Christmas for the first time with an empty chair around the table. So here's what I want to say to you. Death is real. And death is powerful. But it is not more real or more powerful than God. Death does not have the last word. God has the final word. 
And Jesus is the one who speaks it when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So if there's going to be an empty seat at a table this holiday, I want to leave you with the words of an ancient letter written by a church planter to a church in Thessalonica. These words are for you. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It is no accident that the Christian year begins with hope. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for reminding us that we do live in this in-between time, which can be so confusing We thank you, Lord, that we don't live through this time by ourselves. For not only are you with us, but we walk through these days with one another. We can remind one another of who you are. You are the great I am. You are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.